When I was a young preacher in my teens and early 20s, Tommy was one of those who was always faithful at church, would sing, would lead worship at church. And when I pastored that little mission, mission church in Kentucky, he, for a good part of the time I was there, led the worship every Sunday. I don't know what I would have done without him, so he's always been a faithful servant. And when I was speaking to him, I asked him how he was doing. He said, said I'm doing, doing better. I want to get back to church and sing. I want to sing some more. And uh, Mom was telling me that he's there most Sundays to worship, unless maybe he's had a treatment and not able to come. But, uh, but he's been faithful all those decades, and I really appreciate his service for the Lord. And I think all of us who've been authentically saved by the, the grace of Jesus Christ want to spend the rest of our lives growing in Jesus, living for Jesus, serving Jesus. None of us want to reach a place where we you know, just stop or where we, we give up. We want, to, we want to keep pushing forward and becoming more and more like Christ. We want to thrive. And that's what we're talking about this month as we study First Timothy. And I, open, I invite you to open your Bible to the first chapter of First Timothy. We're looking at some verses in this one chapter all month that can help us know some of the practical things you, you and I can do to thrive spiritually, not, not just today, but tomorrow and next decade, as long as God gives us breath on this planet, we want to be growing and changing and thriving spiritually. So how do we, how do, we do that? And uh, we've already said that two of the keys to thriving spiritually is maintaining our connection with Jesus Christ. And it's so easy as the years go by to become more of a church person, more of a religious person, and less of a Jesus person. And we never need to get over the fact that we've been saved and it's a relationship with Christ. Maintain your intimate, strong connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the keys to thriving. We saw that in the first two verses. Then last week we looked at verses 3, 4, and following and talked about the importance of, of being transformed, not just on the outside but on the inside, as we allow God to take His Word and do a work within us as we approach Bible reading, Bible study the right way, as we sit under the right kind of Bible teaching and uh, preaching so that, that God makes us a new person on the inside because thriving spiritually is not just you know, on the outside in our lifestyle conforming to the right rules and so on, but it's being a different person because of that connection with Jesus. On the inside, I'm becoming more godly. On the inside, I'm becoming more loving. And if that happens in here, then on the outside, hey, it's easy to do what I'm supposed to do because I'm being fixed in here as God has my heart, as Jesus has my soul and transforms me. And so when you come to Bible study, you need to approach it with the idea that you want to be changed, you want to be transformed. And so we saw last Sunday there are right approaches to Bible study, Bible reading, and wrong approaches to Bible study, Bible reading, Bible teaching. And one of the wrong approaches we talked about last Sunday is focusing on your head and not transformation. But the right kind of Bible study does something very specific. It transforms us into a loving and godly follower of Christ. And those two go together. If you're going to have the biblical definition of love and the biblical definition of godliness, they go together. Because love is more than just sentiment, and godliness is more than outer conforming to, you know, conforming on the outside to a bunch of rules and so on. But you put them together, change on the inside, and then on the outside, I am more loving and I live a more Christ-like life. So I'm becoming more loving and more godly. But the wrong approach to Bible study, we said last week, is just focusing up here. Focusing on head knowledge more than life transformation, life change. Now, that doesn't mean head knowledge is not important. Doctrine matters. Teaching matters. What you believe matters. There is truth. That is important. But there are a lot of people who go to church, they're Christians, and they have all this Bible information in their head, but they're still mean. 
I mean, they're still harsh. They, on the outside, they don't live like a follower of Christ. So it's not just getting stuff in your head, but being changed in how you live. Today, we're going to look at two more wrong approaches to Bible study. And they're wrong because they don't lead to that kind of transformation that God wants to happen in our lives that he mentions in verses 3 and 4, being transformed, becoming more loving, more godly. And to make sure you understand these wrong approaches, I need to help you understand a little bit more about the context for the book of First, First Timothy because the false teachers that Timothy is having to deal with We're doing some of the same things, making some of the same mistakes, approaching Scripture the same way that some people approach it today, some of the same mistakes that are happening today. You remember Paul had left Timothy in the city of Ephesus to pastor that church, and he was to fix some problems that were being created because some people in that church were approaching the Bible the wrong way, teaching the wrong things, and it was leading some followers of Jesus astray, and it was messing up their faith. So what exactly were they, were they teaching? Well, let's see if we can understand it. First Timothy chapter 1, we get some clues. Look with me at verse 3. He talks about not teaching strange doctrines. Your Bible may translate different, other, false doctrines. And we said last Sunday the focus in that verse and in that Greek word is not teaching, for instance, from other world religions in comparison to Christianity. But the strange or wrong teaching that he's talking about here was coming from within the church. So it's coming from within Christian circles. It's teaching that, that said, oh, we're using the Bible and we're teaching Christian stuff, but it was contrary to what the Bible actually teaches. It was contrary to biblical truth. And so it was coming from within the church, and it was strange. And he uses that military term to command, to stop, give them an order to stop doing that. We have some more clues to this false teaching. Look at verse 4. He said, uh, myths and endless genealogies. Don't pay attention to those. Because they, they give rise to mere speculation rather than the feathering or advancing of the administration or the work of God. So focus on those words, myths and genealogies and speculation. Now look in chapter 1 at verses 6 and 7. Some more insight into this false teaching. He said, some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand what they're saying. And so... The clues to this false teaching was it involves genealogies, it involves myths, it involves speculation, it involves fruitless discussion, and their use of the law, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament teachings. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, another clue. He said, have nothing to do with worldly fables, fables, things that are made up, traditions or whatever, stories of old. Now look in chapter 6, another clue. Timothy Guard what has been entrusted to you. Take care of the truth you've received, the discipleship that's been a part of your life, the gospel that you've been entrusted with. Guard it. Take care of it. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Oh, I know something you don't know. Which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. One last passage. Go over to the book of Titus. You're in 1 Timothy. Just go through 2 Timothy, Titus, chapter 1, because Paul wrote 1 2 Timothy, Titus, about the same time to these two young preachers who were pastoring churches, fixing problems that were similar in those churches. And in verse 14 of chapter 1 in Titus, he said, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments, commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So 
here's the best we can make of it. They were using the Bible, and he talks about genealogies, referring to the list of characters, the lineage of descendants in the Old Testament. So you're taking all these Old Testament characters, these men and women of God that are described in the Old Testament, the genealogies. Then he talks about myths and fables, things that are made up, stories and so on. And so it's, it seems that what they were doing, they, they had these traditions they had received, these, these fables from the past, these made up stories that are not found in the Bible, not found in the Old Testament. And they were adding those stories, those myths, those fables, adding those to what the Old Testament actually said about different biblical characters, whether it was Moses or Elijah or anyone else. So you have these Old Testament characters, these made-up stories. They were adding them to those. And then that was creating a lot of confusion in the church, dissension, discussion, speculation, fruitless conversation. And they were actually taking some of that, and he says, using it as commandments. In other words, saying, because of these stories about these Old Testament characters that are not found in the Bible, here's what you need to do, using those as a basis for teaching. And it was causing some people to lose faith, leading them astray and messing them up spiritually. And so Paul says, Timothy, you need to put a stop to all of that. He even uses the word knowledge because they were talking about we have all this insight, these 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 secrets that you don't have. When you hear people today, whether it's in cults or something else, talk about I've got a new revelation from God. And they have all this new insight. And he says knowledge falsely called because it makes them feel like they're smarter than everybody else. When you hear someone talking like that, run away. Be very careful. When they're adding to Scripture, and they got all this new stuff, that should be a, an alarm in your mind because that's exactly what these false teachers were doing. And we still have some of that happening today. Small scales, large scales. Illustrate it for you real quickly, and then we'll move on. For instance, think about Mormonism. Mormons say they're Christians. Bible-believing Christians say, no, Mormon religion is not Christianity. But they use the term Christian. What do they do? Centuries later, the Book of Mormon is written. And it says, we accept the Bible, but the Bible is corrupted and you can't trust it the way we have it. And so the only way you can really understand the Bible is through the Book of Mormon. And so it's something that came later that's been added to in a fashion similar to what they were doing here with fables and myths, these stories that were added to what the text actually says and then being taught as truth. Something similar with Islam. Muhammad was familiar with Christianity a few centuries after the time of Christ because of the trade routes and so on. And then he received all this new revelation. And and, and Islam officially teaches that certain parts of the Bible are God's Word, but it's been corrupted and you can't trust it. And so the only way you can understand the Bible is to accept the Koran, which was written centuries after the Old Testament, centuries after the New Testament, centuries after Christ, except the Koran because the Bible's been corrupted. So again, it's another form of taking something new, adding to, replacing what God has said in Scripture, and then you have this new knowledge. Well, let's been, listen, folks, it's not new. It happens today. It's been happening from the very beginning. Nothing new in that. It sounds new to us because maybe you've never been aware of that stuff, but it's not new. The old saying, there's nothing new under the sun is absolutely correct. There really, really isn't. But that's not where I want to focus today. 
I want to focus on two more approaches to Bible study and Bible reading that are wrong, that goes beyond what I've just said. Ways people misuse the Bible. They use the Bible, but they misuse it. And it hurts people spiritually because it's not producing godliness. It's not producing this kind of transformation and growth that conforms to the godliness of Christ, to what God clearly says in Scripture about what is right and what is wrong and about how to live and how to love and and treat people and so on. And these approaches are similar to what the false teachers in the church at Ephesus were doing. Now look at verse 8. Let's understand this false teaching just a little bit better, and then we'll draw out these practical lessons for us today about the wrong approach to Bible study. Look at 1 Timothy again, chapter 1, at verse, verse 8. He says, we know that the law is good. Now they were misusing the law to teach additional stuff, but he says the law, the Old Testament teaching, it's good if, important word, one uses it lawfully. Again, what I said the last two Sundays, there's a wrong approach to Bible study and a right approach to Bible study. Just because someone holds the Bible and says, I'm using the Bible and and this is Christianity doesn't mean it is biblical and does not mean it is Christian. It's good if you use it lawfully, if you approach the Word of God the right way. So what is the purpose of the Old Testament law? Look at verse 9. He said, realizing that the law, the Old Testament commandments, if you will, the law is not made for what? Talk to me, church. A righteous person. It's not made for a righteous person. Instead, it's made for what? Those who are lawless, rebellious, the ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, those those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, verse 10, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine to sound teaching now i want you to notice what he said at the very beginning of verse 9 the law these old testament commandments are not made for the righteous not made for those of us who are saved it's made for sinners it's made for us before we came to christ it's made for people today who are outside a relationship with jesus christ who have not repented of their sin and turn their life over to Christ to be changed on the inside and therefore changed on the outside. He said there's a right approach to the law of God and a wrong approach. And you need to understand, if you're going to do it biblically, that the law, he says, is for the rebellious, the sinners, the murderers, etc. The law is not for the righteous. Now, I want to say that one of the mistakes we sometimes make is we get that backwards. And we come to faith in Jesus by grace and then try to live the Christian life by law. That's exactly what Paul talks about in the book of Galatians. And he asked the question, who's bewitched you? Who tricked you? Why are you changing? If you begin by faith, why are you trying to continue your Christian life by following a bunch of do's and don'ts? By law. Instead of faith and grace and transformation. And remember, the purpose of Bible study is to change me on the inside so that I'm stronger in my connection to Jesus. And it's just natural then that on the outside I look more like Jesus and I'm godly in the way that God in Scripture defines godliness, the way that God says what is right and what is wrong. So let's understand this just a little bit more. In your notes and on the screen, the the words from Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Notice what he says, two things. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No one's going to be saved because they keep the law. 
The reason no person in this room, no person watching on television today, no person you know, no person at all will ever go to heaven because they obey the law of God, because they are good, because they do what God says is right and avoid what God says is wrong, is because if you're going to go to heaven by keeping the law, you have to keep it completely perfectly. You break the law one time, you're a lawbreaker. Just as if you commit a crime, you're a criminal. You sin one time, you're a sinner. And because each and every person in this room, each and every person on this planet has broken God's law at least one time, literally thousands, but at least one time, we're all lawbreakers. And therefore, the opportunity of going to heaven by keeping the law is already out the window for each and every one of us. God says in the Bible, no one is justified in God's sight by keeping the law. doesn't work. can't get to heaven that way. So if you're counting on your being a good person to get you to heaven, sorry, won't work. That's what God says. Second thing in that verse, for through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. Remember in Timothy, what did he say? The law was not made for the righteous, those who are already right with God, those who are saved. The law was made for the ungodly, the unrighteous here, because the law reveals what is sin. The law lets me know I'm a sinner. The law reveals to me what God says is right and wrong. The law reveals the reality of sin. And apart from that, I don't know what is right and wrong. Apart from that, I don't realize that I am a sinner in need of salvation. And so the role of the law is to reveal sin to those of us who are lost. Did it for me before I gave my life to Christ? Did it for you before you gave your life to Christ? That's the role of the law in this world today. Now, look at what he says in Romans chapter 7, verses 4 and following. He says, My brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Now, notice this. Die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. To whom? To him who was raised from the dead, Jesus, in order that we might bear fruit for God. In the earlier verses in chapter 7, he talks about marriage, how man and woman are united to one another. And so what he's saying is, before you gave your life to Christ, you were joined to the law, united to the law, if you will, because the only opportunity you had for going to heaven was by obeying the law, being good. But once you gave your life to Christ, through the body of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, you were joined to Christ, united to Christ, married to Christ, if you will, and now you are dead to the law. That relationship is severed because it did its work in your life. And now it's through your union with Christ that you are right with God. Not because you are united with the law or you are being good. The law revealed your need of union with Christ. The law revealed to you that you were a sinner. And the law reveals to us what is right And what is wrong? Now, the next verse, verse 5. He said, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Now, let me illustrate that. How many of you parents or grandparents have ever said to your children, don't do that? And what do they do? They did it, right? Because the very moment you say something's off limits, there's something within them that says, oh, I'm going to do that. That's true of all of us as human beings. In the flesh, our sinful nature, when God says this is wrong, we just got to go there. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? You can have everything in this garden, everything you need, except that one tree, the fruit from that one tree. And which one did they want? That's how it works. And so, yes, the law reveals not only what is right and wrong, but how corrupt our sinful nature really is because we want what God says we can't have. 
what God says is immoral, what God says is sinful, what God says is wrong, our sinful, corrupt nature and passions want that very thing. Look at the next verse. But now, since Christ, since we've been saved, we have been released from the law. Verse 5, died to the law, released from the law, died to the law. Here, having died to that by which we were bound, we were bound to the law, but now we're not. We're dead to that and connected to Christ so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And so these false teachers in Ephesus were taking the Old Testament law, adding stuff to it, using it as commandments. They were misusing the law, and it was messing up the, the, the spiritual lives of the Christians in that church. And what I want to say is that today people still misuse the law, misuse the Scripture, misuse the Old Testament, misuse the Bible to mess people up spiritually. And there's two ways I want to talk about. One of them has been more prominent in the past, recent past, and still is around in churches. And the other one, it's been around, but it's really prominent right now. And the first one is what normally we, 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 we call legalism. Legalism. And legalism is a mistake that those of us who are conservative, those of us who are Bible-believing Christians, I mean, we hold up the Word of God and we say this is God's Word, we believe it, it's, it's inerrant, it's His, His inspired Word, we believe it. We are the ones who tend to make this mistake if we're not careful of beginning by grace and then trying to live the Christian life and force it on everyone else through a legalistic system. To help you understand what I mean by that, look in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Because they were doing it in the church at Ephesus. That's what these false teachers were doing. In chapter 4, verse 1, he said, The Spirit, the Holy Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding arm. We talked about that last Sunday, that... that you cannot completely trust your own intuition, your own emotion, your own sense of what is right and wrong, your own conscience, your own self-belief, because your conscience can be corrupted by sin. Here he says it's seared, like with a hot iron, a branding iron. It's the idea that, that you can be some, become so callous to what God says is right and wrong that it doesn't move you anymore because you think, you feel, etc., etc. Your conscience can lead you astray. And he continues, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. Now, I don't have time to go into all that, but here's what they were doing. In addition to adding to these Old Testament biblical characters, these stories they made up, they were teaching commandments. And part of the commandments were very legalistic. They were saying you can eat this and you can't eat that. They were misusing the Bible and applying it to Christians. Do's and don'ts. Eat this. No, not that. All these rules and all that kind of stuff. Now, if we're not careful... We can make the same mistake in our own walk with Jesus. Now, God in Scripture gives us very clear commandments, very clear teachings, right? Legalism is when I come up with some practical guidelines, some practical rules that help me live out in the everyday world, in my everyday life, that commandment of God. Nothing wrong with that. I have rules in my life that I follow. I have guidelines that help me try to obey the teachings of God, right? We all have certain guidelines, rules, things I, I will do, things I won't do. Good, that's okay. Here's the problem. 
when I take my rules for how I'm going to obey Scripture. For instance, the Bible says, observe the Sabbath. Well, historically in our Bible-believing churches, we have all these rules about what you can and cannot do on Sunday, more so in the past than today, right? You can do this, you can't do that on Sunday. All the Bible says is observe the Sabbath. It doesn't say you can't do this or you can't do that. Observe the Sabbath. That's, That's the teaching. But we come up with all these rules of what we're supposed to do or not do. Well, that's okay if it helps me. But when I take my rules and I make them almost co-equal with what Scripture actually says, and then I force them on everybody else. And I judge everyone else for what kind of Christian they are, not on the basis of the command, but on the basis of my rule. That's when I've gone too far and have become a legalist. Some of you, you've heard this in, in the past, rules about what you wear to church. You know, you have to dress, you have to wear a suit and tie or you don't wear a suit and tie. It can go either way. It doesn't matter. But how you dress. And so we come up with all these rules. I, I've read in the scripture about worship, not missing church. I've read in scripture about, you know, what worship is. I've never read in the scripture about I'm supposed to wear a tie or a suit when I go to church or I'm not. It doesn't say one thing about it either way. How you feel about that is okay. It doesn't matter. You can wear a suit, not wear a suit. But when you take your rule and apply it to someone else as almost equal to the Word of God, that's legalism. And what legalism does is it causes us to compare people, to compare us to them, them to, to us, to judge and criticize, and makes it very difficult for us to love people, and especially difficult for us to love lost people in this world who don't follow all of our rules. Does that make any sense? So legalism is a wrong approach to God's Word, to Bible study. It's what the Pharisees did. And it's what those of us in Bible-believing churches historically do if we're not careful. Secondly, and here's, here's the one that's becoming more prominent in our minds and eyes today that I want to talk about. And, it, and this is a second wrong approach to Scripture. Distorting what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches in order to justify sinful behavior that the Bible says is wrong, using the Word of God to justify sinful behavior instead of promoting what God says is godly behavior. And that is happening today in many churches, Christian, so-called Christian writings. is is happening today to some extent, within certain Christian groups and with, with regard to the issue of homosexuality. Now, I'm going to talk about that at length in three sermons starting the first Sunday in August. Don't have time to deal with that in depth today, but just a, a, a little bit. I want you to look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. It's in your notes and on the screen here. What, we sh- what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to known sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. And so Paul is saying in that passage that the only way I know what is right and wrong is to see what God says about it. I would not have known anything about coveting being wrong if God had not said it in Scripture. So the law again reveals what is sinful. And so look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. After saying in verse 8, the law is good if you use it lawfully, realizing in verse 9 that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for whom? For all who are lawless, who don't have the law, don't accept the law, 
rebellious, the ungodly, sinners, the unholy, profane, those who kill their fathers and mothers, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, to sound doctrine. So what he does is after saying, here's the real purpose of the law. Let us know what's right and wrong, what God says is sinful, not sinful. He gives us this brief list of some sins, of some behaviors that God says are sinful, that God says are wrong. It's not a complete list. It's a partial list, but it's a clear list. And there are some people today who actually take the Bible and twist it, misuse it, to justify some of the things that God says are sinful. Now, when we get to that series on homosexuality next month, this is not going to be a series where I just shout and say the Bible says it's a sin, everybody says amen, and, you know, we're all mad. Okay? Because that's just, that's just not going to do anybody any good. And that's not the way we're supposed to do it anyway. I mean, in this passage, it's clearly identified as sin. But we're going to talk about some of the approaches that people who use the Bible to say it's okay, some of the approaches they take. Because these young people sitting over here, and any of you sitting in this room, you can go to your computer, your laptop, your, your tablet, your iPhone, whatever, and you can Google certain words, and you can find all these writings, all these articles, all this material. You can go to a bookstore, and you can buy books, all purporting to be Christian, coming from within so-called Christian circles, just like the false teachers in Ephesus from within the church that give these explanations, these reasonings for why certain behaviors, including homosexuality, are right and they claim to be Christians. Well, if all you read is that, it can be a little bit persuasive. So you need to understand those issues and understand what the Bible says and how it all fits together. We're going to talk about some very practical stuff, so we're going to spend those three weeks teaching and learning. And if you want to learn and you want to know how to think biblically and you want to know how to have a conversation with someone in this culture and you want to know how to be as a follower of Christ in this culture that relates to that issue, then you need to be here. If you just want shouting and clapping and, and hollering and amening and mad and anger, it's not for you, okay? You can get that anywhere. We're going to learn God's Word, and we're going to learn how to apply it to everyday life accurately and appropriately. That's the purpose of that series next month. So I hope you'll be here every, every Sunday. Well, let me move on. In this list of sins, I want, to, I want to use two two of them to illustrate how people twist the Bible to justify what is wrong. I want you to notice the first one found in verse 10 I want to talk about is in my New American Standard Bible, translated as kidnappers. I think the King James translates it men-stealers. Some Bibles translate it slave traders, enslavers. The Greek word translated here as kidnappers, slave traders, men-stealers. The root word, this Greek word, the root word for it means to put your foot on someone, to put them under your foot. That's a pretty vivid symbol, isn't it? And in time it came to be used for men and women who were captured in ancient times during wars. And were then sold as slaves. So the newer translations that actually use words like slave trader and so on are accurate. That's exactly what the word means. And so the Bible is saying that slavery, that you putting your foot on someone else and putting them into slavery, you, you abusing someone, putting them into slavery is a sin. 
No ifs, ands, buts about it. Always has been, always will be. And yet historically people have used the Bible to justify putting other people under their foot. One of the persons that I really admire in our Baptist history is a man named Richard Furman. Lived in the 1800s. Furman University is named after him. He was instrumental in the founding of the South Carolina Baptist Convention in the 1820s. Great man. Did so much that was good. But he had one period in his life where he became a coward. For years, as a young man, Richard Furman preached against slavery in South Carolina, his home. And then in the years immediately before the Civil War, he changed his preaching. Can you not imagine all the cultural pressure he was under to conform with the thoughts of the South at that time? And so he caved. And we have written evidence of his changing his sermons to fit, using Scripture to justify slavery. He wasn't the only one, but he's an example of it. For years, the Bible was used by people who went to church to justify segregation. You all know my story. One of the people so influential in my, in my coming to, to Christ was my uncle, Donald Eugene Prude, who lived in Detroit, Michigan. He died earlier this year. Great man. But there was one area in his life where he just had it wrong. And, it came, and, and, and that was race relations. And I can remember, now remember, he, he, he lived in Detroit in the 1960s when the race wars and riots and, and, and the burning of the city and all of that. He lived through all of that in Detroit. And I can remember talking to him as a young Christian in my teens on the telephone and him using Genesis and animals giving birth to other animals after their own kind as justification for blacks and whites not mingling together. And he was wrong. But he was using Scripture to justify it. And people have done that. So just be, again, I say, just because someone has a Bible and they say this is, this is, this is Christian doesn't mean it is or that it's biblical or they're teaching correctly or that... They're approaching the Bible the right way. Now, the other issue he mentions here, and one that's very prominent right now in our country, is homosexuality. Because just as he includes slavery, slave trading, as a sin, he includes homosexuality as a sin. Now, as I've already said, next month I'm going to deal with that in depth. But today I just want to point out that it is in the same list of sins as murderers, and liars and slave traders. No matter what anybody feels, that's what Scripture says. Now, there's primarily three ways people from within Christian circles misuse the Bible to justify what God here says is wrong. One approach is this, and this is the one that started in the, in, you know, is the oldest. I, I can remember in the early 80s, and I'll tell you about that next month. And it, it is, it's a focus that, 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 that talks about God's grace and God's love and God's mercy and just chooses to ignore what God says about sin and what God says about judgment. And because it ignores that and focuses only on what God says about, you know, what the Bible says about God's grace and love, we are to love everybody, welcome everybody, accept everybody, and what anybody wants to do is, is okay. And we're going to be all inclusive because it's really not sin. And it just basically ignores this other and only focuses on this. And that's 
the least persuasive approach, but it's a common approach, especially out in the culture. A second approach is similar to it, but yet different. The second approach says, I believe what the Bible says about God's love. I believe what the Bible says about God's grace. I believe what the Bible says about God's mercy. I believe what the Bible says about this, 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 and this. But when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, the Bible's wrong. Why? Because I want it to be wrong. I believe it is wrong. It's wrong. I accept everything the Bible says about these things, but I reject what it says about that. In other words, when the Bible agrees with me, it's right. When the Bible disagrees with me, it's wrong. Remember, in verses 4 and 5, the purpose of biblical teaching, the purpose of your Bible reading and your Bible study, good teaching, the right teaching, is to enable us to be transformed so that we become more like Christ in love and in godliness, putting the two together. And he says in this, these books that what does not promote godliness promotes ungodliness and is wrong. So the second approach says, I believe this, but I reject that. Pick and choose. Believe what you want to believe. And the third approach tries to take the Bible a little bit more seriously than that. And they'll, you, you'll read some of those literatures. You, you, you can find it on Google today. If you just get in Google, you can find articles like this. That take these Greek words translated to homosexuality in the Bible, and they have all these reasons for why it's not referring to homosexuality as we understand it today in a loving, committed relationship. It's only talking about homosexuality in relationships where there's abuse, where it's, where it's slavery, where there's domination, none in a loving, committed relationship. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with those issues next month, and we're going to look at those words and explain to you why what they say in those articles is, is just not accurate at all, not even close. But if someone only reads what those writers, authors talk about, you can be fooled. So you need to know all of the story. So we're going to look at that kind of stuff. But that's one approach. It abuses Scripture, misuses it by not being honest with the text, even though it purports to use the text. Now let me wrap this up because I'm out of time. Some more verses just to call some things to our attention. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 3, please. Verse 3. He said, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness. Again, more than once, true teaching encourages, promotes godliness. False teaching, he says, does not. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Can you imagine what would be happening in American culture today if over the last 50 years everyone who says, I'm a Christian, every denomination, every church that says we are Christian, we believe the Bible, said what the Bible actually says about these moral issues. But when the church can't get its act together on God's truth, it's easy for the culture to ignore everything we say about God's truth. Spreads. And it leads, what did he say, to more and more and more ungodliness, not to conforming to the godliness of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15 in that same chapter, 
verse 15. He said, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, a wrong way, right way to deal with Scripture. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, passing the truth of Scripture on to generations to come. That's why we're going to deal with this issue next month. One last passage on the screen, Jude, book of Jude. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of God into licentiousness. Your Bible may translate that licentiousness as lasciviousness, promiscuity, license for immorality. The Greek word means no restraints. In other words, do whatever you please. Do whatever you want. And one of the arguments is because God is grace and God is love, it's not wrong. We accept everyone and everything because there are no boundaries. There is no right and wrong. There is no sin. And we take the grace of God and abuse it, misuse it, by saying whatever I feel Whatever I please is okay. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. You can't repent if you don't believe you have something to repent of. You can't repent if you don't believe there's any sin from which you need to turn. If everything's okay, you don't need Christ. You don't need the gospel. You don't need the cross. I love the quote from Warren Wearsby a few years ago. He said, law and gospel, law and gospel go together. For the law without the gospel is diagnosis without remedy. To only focus on what is sin, and I'll never talk about the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, is to tell somebody you've got a problem, but there's no fix for it, there's no hope. And that's, that's wrong. But he also continued, the gospel without the law, God's love without what God says about right and wrong, is only good news of salvation for people who don't believe they need it. Because if there's no sin, there's nothing to repent of. You don't, know, you don't need Jesus. You don't need the cross. You're okay. Because they've never heard the bad news of judgment. So you and I as followers of Christ who believe the Scripture, don't become legalists who force all your do's and don'ts and rules on everybody else. Allow the Word of God to do a work in your life. Allow the Holy Spirit to take God's Word and change you so that you become a better follower of Christ, a more godly follower of Christ, a more loving follower of Christ. And you focus on transformation transformation but also at the same time don't fall for the approach that's been around forever that whatever you feel whatever you want whatever you think is okay no matter what God says because what God says today is what God said 2,000 years ago and it's the same thing God will say 2,000 years from now because his truth is not going to change
no matter how much the culture changes. But your focus is not falling for that and allowing the Word of God to transform you, your relationship with Christ to change you so that you are better at loving people and serving people and being an example through your heart and your lifestyle of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So let's stand.